Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're discussing the films of Samuel L. Jackson. The first thing you might notice when looking at the filmography of Samuel L. Jackson is that he has a ton of movies. <laughs> he, has, he has so many movies. Um... For this show, I've eliminated a lot of his and credits. So he has a lot of movies where it's, you know, starring this person and this person and Samuel L. Jackson. And what the and credit normally means is that it's a famous person in a smaller role. And so it's not really their movie. And so I eliminated a lot of those. And since we will have future episodes on Marvel, Pixar, Jurassic Park, the Quentin Tarantino movies, I've gone ahead and eliminated those as well. So we're not talking about Jurassic Park, Pulp Fiction, The Incredibles any of his Nick Fury appearances. Oh, and Tara will be back for a M. Night Shyamalan episode, so we won't be talking about Unbreakable or Glass either. But that does still leave a lot of movies. <laughs> like, seriously, he's been in so many movies. Samuel L. Jackson is one of those people whose star just seems to have exploded out of nowhere. Once Pulp Fiction exploded, he was famous. His name was everywhere. Everyone knew who he was. He got his Oscar nomination. His name was above the title on movies. And he got probably the biggest and credit ever in cinema history in the Marvel Universe where he became and Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury on virtually every poster in the MCU. But if you look at his films, he was working for a long time before Pulp Fiction. And so it's always surprising to see him pop up in movies before then. You watch something from the late 80s, or early 90s, like Coming to America or The Exorcist 3. And when Sam Jackson shows up, it's like, oh, Oh, yeah. And it's almost strange to see him because it seems like he didn't really exist until Pulp Fiction when that wasn't even true, when his name was actually above the title in other movies already. His name was on the poster for Amos and Andrew and Loaded Weapon 1, and he got a lot of acclaim for his appearance in Jungle Fever. He had been around, but he just had not exploded the way that Pulp Fiction would explode. And then, of course, he's gone on to make, like, 38 movies a year <laughs> since then. Oh man, I don't know when he sleeps because he is in so many movies. Because of that volume of movies, I am not going to read them all off ahead of time. I'm just going to kind of go through them. I'm going to kind of fly through a lot of these. The ones that are more important are worth discussing more. I will go into greater detail, but a few I'll just cross right off with a passing glance because my assumption is you probably don't remember those movies or care too much either, like The Negotiator with Kevin Spacey. The Negotiator is one of those movies that was sold completely by its trailer. And that might sound really silly to say because every movie is sold by its trailer. But the real kicker, the real buzz on that was the twist, which happens early enough in the film to not really complain too much that they give it away. But the movie is about a police negotiator who's framed and takes hostages in order to try to clear his name. Sam Jackson is the initial negotiator. And then Kevin Spacey comes in to negotiate that hostage situation and the twist being that Kevin Spacey then joins Samuel L. Jackson on his side. And in the trailer, it's like, and now you have two to deal with. <laughs> and it's it's just one of those high concepts, kind of like Snakes on a Plane, where it's right there in the title, where for negotiators, right there in the trailer, like, whoa, that's weird. They team up, two negotiators. Uh. And the movie's just, you know, not that good. For early 2000s? Maybe it was 98? Either way, it's... Not really worth the time. I am going to cross off all three of the Star Wars prequels. We've talked about them before. And also his role really isn't significant. He's a big name in the Star Wars prequels, sure. But his character isn't particularly relevant to the story. He's just kind of there. 
He does have a cool moment in episode 3 when he faces off against Palpatine, but that's really more Palpatine scene. It's not really about Mace Windu being cool and then getting lightninged out of a window. It's more about the actor playing the Emperor just chewing the scenery <laughs> like it's a buffet. Ian McDiarmid playing the Emperor, he gives a fantastic performance in that moment, so it's really more about his moment than, than Samuel L. Jackson really doing anything anyway. He just gets taken out and that's it, so I'm taking the Star Wars prequels off this as well. I mentioned earlier Jungle Fever. It's good, but again, kind of like with Star Wars, kind of like with a lot of Samuel L. Jackson movies, his role is a supporting role. He's very, very good in it. It's a strong dramatic role for him, but it's not his movie. It's not about him or his character, really. It's definitely good. I mean, I plan to have a Spike Lee episode, and we'll go into greater detail about Jungle Fever then as well. It's a solid flick. It's just not Sam Jackson's movie. I mentioned Amos and Andrew, which would be a, a very interesting movie to make today. Amos and Andrew is about a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who is in his home and his white neighbors see him thinking he's a burglar and call the police. And then the police surround the place and accidentally fire shots at him. And then the police chief realizes what he did. So he hires a white petty criminal to break in to pretend to be the person that they were trying to arrest, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird race comedy. I, I don't know how you can even really necessarily do a race comedy nowadays. I, I suppose Sorry to Bother You is an example of a recent one. I'm trying to think of any other examples. And that movie was weird as hell, but pretty dang good. But Amos and Andrew, I, I don't think they could do that concept as such a broad comedy. You either need to go to the extreme, like Sorry to Bother You, or you need to make it more dramatic. Maybe satirical? Maybe they could do it as a satire? As it is now, it's just sort of a weird time capsule. I'm going to cross off Against the Wall. That's a pre-Pulp Fiction HBO movie that he did about Attica. Uh, it has Kyle MacLachlan in it. It's good. It exists in this weird bubble of 90s HBO movies that all kind of looked alike. They all sort of blend together visually. It's hard to tell one apart from the other. Kind of like how Marvel movies all kind of look alike now. But that's not to say it's not good. It's a good movie. I'm going to cross off Trees Lounge. Trees Lounge is one of his and credits, but I left it on here because not a lot of people are aware of it. Steve Buscemi made it. It's an excellent film. I am crossing it off because, again, being a smaller role for him, it's not really his movie. I do recommend Trees Lounge, though, quite a lot, actually. If you are a fan of 90s-era independent films like Fargo and that big boom of movies that came out after Pulp Fiction hit it big, I suggest you seek it out. It's good. Next one I'm crossing off is Sphere. Sphere is a strange movie. Imagine the author of Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton, writing an underwater sci-fi movie. And then at the end, the big, great climax of the movie is the characters using their newfound powers gifted by the sphere to make themselves forget everything that happened. So they're kind of in a circle holding hands, wondering, hey, what are we doing here? Why are we holding hands? And that's the end of the movie. It's so pointless. Well, since I mentioned underwater, let's talk about Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> okay. Okay. I love Deep Blue Sea. I really, really do. Deep Blue Sea is not something I would categorize as a good movie, necessarily. In fact, I, I considered including it on my good, bad movies episode that I want to do eventually. No one can really defend Deep Blue Sea as a good movie. A lot of critics have used the cheesy, buzzy sort of phrasing of, it's a roller coaster ride, when they describe movies. Deep Blue Sea is probably the closest to almost literally being that, in that it's short, it's just riding on a track, it's not high art, it's just a fun little thing, and I saw it seven times in theaters when it came out. A movie like this, though, does sort of bring up the question of, if you like it, if you enjoy watching it. 
then does that mean it's not actually bad? And that's a question I will explore in the good bad episode, but that is sort of something to think about where even if a movie is bad, if you like watching it, doesn't that mean that it succeeded? The next two movies I'm going to cross off are surprisingly good. Lakeview Terrace and Changing Lanes. Lakeview Terrace is about a cop played by Sam Jackson whose neighbors are an interracial couple and he not overtly but eventually begins to have a significant issue with them and it's a movie about battling neighbors where one of them is a cop so who do they call who do they call when their neighbors harassing them and changing lanes is about road rage gone incredibly wrong where a simple act of one driver cutting off the other and these two drivers being Sam Jackson and Ben Affleck just leads to a series of events where these two men are messing with each other's lives and you might think that these concepts might not lend themselves to particularly good films, essentially domestic thrillers. Both films are solid. I like Lakeview Terrace and I like Changing Lanes. They're not good enough to keep. There are better movies on this list. I'm going to go through a couple bad ones real quick. Some bad ones are Formula 51. It's really terrible. <laughs> uh, I'm crossing off all three XXX movies. Sam Jackson's role in them is a glorified cameo, especially in 2 and 3. There is fun to be had with Triple X 3, The Return of Xander Cage. That was the one where Vin Diesel came back because he had been in the first one, but then he didn't do part two, and Ice Cube was Triple X in part two, and then Vin Diesel came back for the third one. The third one sort of apes the Fast and Furious formula of ridiculous action, large cast, globetrotting adventure. It's kind of like uh, like McDonald's. You may not feel good afterwards, but at the time, it's 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 pretty okay, you know? It's pretty okay. Uh, he had two comedies that were pretty close together, Soul Men and The Man, one with Eugene Levy and one with Bernie Mac. Neither one, very good. Not very funny, not very good movies. I had mentioned Snakes on a Plane. Oh, man. Snakes on a Plane is one of those movies where I had a lot of high hope. I really did. I like silly, fun movies. Not everything has to be smart. Not everything has to take place in the real world. And not everything has to be, you know, the Avengers. Sometimes a movie can just be dumb fun. Snakes on a Plane, however, <laughs> it was not a good movie. It started as a PG-13 movie, and then when the internet buzz built around it, they decided to film some R-rated content to bust it up to an R rating, and then the movie came out, and it turns out internet hype does not equal people buying movie tickets, and the movie basically bombed. The silly concept is great, and it's right there in the title. I love the honesty, and it could have been a lot of fun. The movie is just too cheap. It's like they couldn't decide if they were making a dumb movie or a real horror movie, and they don't really succeed at either one. Like, they needed to make up their minds. Are they making a dumb movie or an actual horror movie? And they just didn't have the nerve to fully step into one or the other. I'm going to cross off Jumper. I like Sam Jackson as a villain. I mean, I guess he's a sort of villain in that, but that movie's terrible. He has a movie called Sunset Unlimited, which I'm certain very few people have probably even heard of. It's just him and Tommy Lee Jones sitting in a room talking for an hour and a half. And if that sounds like a play, it's because it is. It's based on a play. If you want to watch two great actors just play off of each other, it's worth seeking out. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Chances are most people will probably find it kind of boring. Because a format like that can work on a stage. When you're watching real people in real time perform... Two people just talking at a table can be riveting, but when it's in a movie form, uh, attention just isn't held quite the same way. I'm going to go ahead and cross off both Hitman's Bodyguard movies. They're fine, I guess. I don't really like them. I know people like them. They're a little silly. It's okay. The profanity is a little excessive, and I'm not being sensitive. I have no problem with profanity. It seems like those movies are using it specifically 
to try to be like, hey, look at how edgy I am by how many F words I can say in one minute. I think the word I would use is obvious. It seems obvious. You can have a movie like Clerks or Pulp Fiction or Goodfellas where there's an F word every 60 seconds and it can feel natural to the characters in the movie. The Hitman's Bodyguard movies, I feel like they're trying to use profanity as the punchline. Like, isn't it funny that we're saying the F word a bunch of times? That's not a joke in itself, except for, (laughs) I guess, in planes, trains, and automobiles, it is a joke in itself. But in the Hitman's Bodyguard movies, it's not. He has a recent movie called The Protégé, which was okay. You know, it was was fine. It's not really his movie, though. Just like a lot of these other ones, he has that supporting role where he's really just in it at the beginning and, spoiler, at the end. That that movie really belongs to Michael Keaton. He He is great in it. I just wish it was a better movie. A few other movies that sort of blend together are Rules of Engagement, Basic, and SWAT. I don't really care for any of them. So, you know, there we go. I'm also crossing off both Shaft movies. His first movie that he did around 2000 was okay. It was fine. The most recent one was really bad though, like surprisingly bad. I'm going to go ahead and cross off Big Game, which is one of those movies that is probably not really well known. He plays the president of the United States whose plane crashes in Norway or Iceland or somewhere in Northern Europe and a little boy has to help him get back to safety. That was a movie I was actually pretty excited for because the director did another film called Rare Exports, which was about people in a village trying to capture Santa Claus. (laughs) It's really good. I definitely, definitely recommend Rare Exports. I'm also going to cross off Old Boy. Old Boy is another Spike Lee movie. It's very good, but I much more recommend the original Korean film. The original Korean film is in my top 15 all-time favorite movies. It is so good. If you have a chance to go in spoiler-free, I recommend you just watch it. Don't read anything about it. Don't read any reviews. Don't let the internet give it away. Just watch it. It's so good. The remake is excellent as well. It has a stacked cast, but Sam Jackson's role is more of a supporting role in that as well. So I'm crossing that one off, but it's very good. I'm also crossing off The Spirit and Black Snake Moan. At a glance, you might not think that those movies should be paired together, (laughs) should be paired together at all. Uh, The reason I'm pairing them together is because Sam Jackson is excellent in both of them. The Spirit is arguably terrible. I say arguably because clearly everything that you might have a problem with that you would define as bad about that film was on purpose. It was a conscious choice by the filmmakers to make the movie that way. So good for them, (laughs) I guess, but it's a bad movie. Black Snake Moan, likewise, although not a bad movie, is not that great, except he is very good in it. So I can't really recommend the movie, but I can recommend his performance in the movie. The next I'm going to cross off is The Legend of Tarzan, which is a movie that made $100 million, but nobody remembers it. I don't know that anyone has ever mentioned The Legend of Tarzan in any movie conversation I've ever had. With that, we're down to the last 10 movies on the list, which are National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1, Die Hard with a Vengeance, A Time to Kill, The Long Kiss Goodnight, 187, Eve's Bayou, Coach Carter, 1408, Kingsman, The Secret Service, and Kong Skull Island. At a glance, the the obvious one to cross off first is A Time to Kill. John Grisham movies are a genre unto themselves. That one is, it's a divisive film. I I know of a lot of people who really hate it, and I also know some people who really like it, so I'm not too sure what the consensus might be for A Time to Kill. I think what it comes down to is that the actors are good in it, but the story is overly preachy, and it comes off as a little false. I don't have a John Grisham episode planned, so off the top of my head, The Firm, The Pelican Brief, and The Client are probably his best ones. I'm going to cross off the two films where he plays vastly different educators, 187 and Coach Carter. 
so many actors want to have their inspirational educator film. And so for him, it's Coach Carter. It's good. Coach Carter is a good movie. If you want to watch a movie about a basketball coach, I wouldn't choose it as one of the three best or most important films, but it's solid. Coach Carter is a solid flick. 187 is a wildly unhappy movie. Potentially unpleasant, but overall solid. I can't say that 187 is a movie I've ever wanted to go back to. It's not a happy experience, but it is a good movie. I like The First Kingsman a lot. The Secret Service is a very fun movie. It's very rewatchable. I hated the sequel. <laughs> the Golden Circle is awful. Kind of like how we've mentioned before, movies like Jaws or Scream, where the lesser sequels kind of taint the original. It's a little hard to think back on the first Kingsman without thinking about the terrible disappointment of the second film. I do like Kingsman The Secret Service quite a bit. I'm tempted to not cross it off. Uh, in fact, actually, you know what? I'm going to hang on to it for just a moment. I'm thinking I'm going to cross it off, but maybe not. We'll see. I am going to cross off Kong Skull Island, and we'll probably dive into that movie again in another episode. For now, I'll say it's good. I don't love it. I have a real problem with how bland pretty much every actor in that movie is, except for John Goodman and Sam Jackson. They did a good job with Kong. It's better than Godzilla vs. Kong, that's for sure. But I'm okay with crossing it off. 1408 really belongs to John Cusack. But as mentioned in the Stephen King episode, it's so good. It's a bite-sized, perfect little horror movie. And Sam Jackson does a lot with his three scenes, I think. So I'm going to hang on to it. My only hesitation is that it's not really his movie. I will say with certainty, though, that Eve's Bayou is one of my three. If you have not seen Eve's Bayou, I recommend it. Just like the original Korean old boy, Eve's Bayou is in my top 15 of all time list. It's about a young girl in the South who feels responsible for her dad's death. And that's not a spoiler. That's how the movie starts. If you like gothic coming-of-age dramas, I cannot recommend Eve's Bayou enough. It is so incredibly good. The little girl in the movie is played by Journey Smollett, and she is still acting today. She was in the Birds of Prey movie, and she is the lead actress on the Lovecraft Country TV show on HBO. An interesting detail about Eve's Bayou is that Sam Jackson plays a womanizing doctor. It's kind of fascinating to watch because in a lot of his movies, he doesn't really get to play a sexualized character. He doesn't really get to play the charmer. He doesn't get to play the guy who slinks into a bedroom with a woman waiting and dramatically closes the door behind him. As charming as he is, he doesn't usually get to play charming in movies. He's usually the badass. So to see him as this character is kind of cool. Of the two remaining action movies, Long Kiss Goodnight and Die Hard with a Vengeance, that's actually pretty easy. Not to discount Long Kiss Goodnight, but Die Hard with a Vengeance is awesome. It's one of those sequels that is almost as good as the original. Pairing John McClane with someone was a fantastic idea. And Samuel L. Jackson rules that movie. He's so good in it, and it's a great movie. The ending is not great. I don't like the way Die Hard 3 ends. But other than that, it's solid. It's really solid. The Long Kiss Goodnight is one of the great 90s action movies. It's really good. It has a wicked sense of humor. It was written by Shane Black, who wrote Predator and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He also wrote Iron Man 3, but I won't hold that against him. Oh, and he also did The Nice Guys, which is so good. I love The Nice Guys. That's such a good movie. But we're coming down to the end here, and The Long Kiss Goodnight, I'm just not going to be able to keep. National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 is one of those forgotten comedies. It's a slapstick comedy along the lines of The Naked Gun. There is a lot of reference humor in it, but like Airplane and Naked Gun, you don't need to have seen the films that it's making fun of in order to get the joke. 90% of the jokes are funny on their own, and if you understand the reference, then yeah, it's a little bit funnier, but you can enjoy it without having seen Die Hard or Lethal Weapon or any of the other movies it's spoofing. 
Loaded Weapon 1 is really funny. I'm kind of surprised that it's sort of unknown. It's not really available. There's no remastered Blu-ray of it. You can find the old DVD from 20 years ago, probably pretty easily. But it's pretty much a forgotten film. It's a little strange, especially with the cast of Dennis Leary, Emilio Estevez, William Shatner, Whoopi Goldberg, Tim Curry. There are a lot of people in this movie. If you like spoof comedies at all, then definitely watch Loaded Weapon 1. It's not a perfect comedy like Airplane or The Naked Gun, but it's 90% there. It's really good. So that leaves me with five, and I can only keep three. I hate to do it, but I'm going to cross off Kingsman. I like the movie, but since this is the Samuel L. Jackson episode, I don't particularly love what he's doing in that movie. I like that he's doing something different. There's fun stuff there, but it's not the most captivating performance. I really don't want to cross off 1408 because it didn't survive the Stephen King episode. It's really good. I, I, I really recommend 1408. I hate to eliminate it on two separate episodes because I really want people to see that movie. But it's not really his movie. His name is above the title, sure, and he definitely is the second leading role in the film. But he's only in... 10 minutes of it, maybe? 1408 is mostly a one-man show, kind of like Castaway. Oh, that's such a tough call. That is such a tough call. I really like 1408. All right, all right, I've made my decision. But before we wrap this up, I'm going to re-emphasize that National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 is a very funny comedy. If you have any interest at all in slapstick humor, again, like Airplane or Naked Gun, I want you to find that film and give it a chance. And so, now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are... Eve's Bayou, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and 1408. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash podcast. And of course, please rate and review wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps us a bunch. I'm your host, Aaron. Thank you for listening.